This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. We got a lot to talk about today. I'm nervous. A lot. I'm nervous we're not going to get it all in. This is a big story, big case. A lot of notes. I right? took a lot of notes on this one. And the, the late night uh, fun festival movies start in, at the same time every night, and they're going to bump us off the air if we don't finish in time. <laughs> the late no, this late is show. serious. Okay, this sorry. Is serious. You also did something terrible. You did something absolutely <laughs> terrible. That's great. What was it? You I brought so some proud. of your neighbor's cake to oh, lunch. My neighbor had a birthday, and we're ha- we had it, and so now there's sugar. We're on a sh- we've got sugar, we got caffeine. So if Christopher falls asleep abruptly in the middle of this <laughs> podcast, nothing bad happened to him. It was just the mango cake. <laughs> Mango cake. And I don't even like mango, but in cake form, I'm apparently a fan. I thought the way they handled the nectar was really pretty tasty. Did you now? Is that your review? Well, it didn't You didn't. It didn't feel fruity. Right, yeah. Fruity. Fruity, he says. It's just not really my thing, although... Mm. No, berries. Berries are really more my thing than fruit. Okay. Any I'm glad other- that's okay. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for that. Any other thoughts? I appreciate permission How, where to Where are you on chitty. tube socks? You like tube socks? Not really. Mine have heels in them, so no, I don't think that's true. Oh, is that what it means? I never understood what the phrase tube socks, (laughs) term tube socks meant. What was in the fucking cake, Eric? What did you put in that cake? I feel drunk. It's really just a cake that I know of now. I didn't make the cake. Somebody gave me a piece. They were So you've poisoned us is what you're saying. He and his boyfriend were walking down the hall in my building, knocking on people's door and giving them huge hunks of cake. Because it was his birthday. This is how the true crime documentary begins. They thought it was just cake coming this fall on Netflix. This was a trusted neighbor. Not There's just so, cake. There are some neighbors. They're always who are, trusted neighbors, Eric. I would have said thank you to some of the people who live in my building and yeah. then thrown it right in the trash and <laughs> gone on with my evening. Like there, I wouldn't necessarily have taken everybody at their word, but this was a trusted neighbor. So. Okay. Okay, that's enough introductory chat. We've been human and relatable. And I love the people who live in my building, by the way, <laughs> but I wouldn't necessarily just eat cake from all of them. <laughs> Some of y'all look like you make weird cake. <laughs> Some of them are like, yeah, thank you. The True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival continues. 
We're uh, finishing out Southern Sins. This is our second and last true crime pairing, which begins this so week. So we're not finishing it out because <laughs> I realized that this as, is as I was saying. It. This, this is, is the, the penultimate Southern Sins episode. <laughs> so, volume three volume of a four volume set. Dash six nine N E S Q. We are actually doing a story. This is one of those I can't believe that in almost 200 episodes we have not talked about this case yet, but it's known by uh, to a lot of people as the Robin Hood Hill murders. Uh, it is the basis of a movie we're going to basis for a movie we're going to discuss next week called Devil's Knot, starring Reese Witherspoon and Colin Firth. And it is like the birthplace yes. of a true crime documentary. Yes. TV. It is just HBO has done, I believe, three, three. two-hour series. Yeah, maybe more and maybe less, but I think at least three. Yeah, um, on this particular topic, the initial and then as it moved forward and then as it reached its resolution, this was one of the most outrageous miscarriages of justice um, that I've been witness to. Um, mm-hmm. And the thing about it was that it became so about artistic expression and freedom of expression Mm -hmm. that it became the cause celeb of Johnny Depp and the Dixie Chicks. Eddie Vedder. Eddie Vedder. Huge crowds of of really big name, bull type celebrities who were like, you've got to be kidding. You just won't believe it. We should... We should talk about the crime first. We should talk about the crime. Um, we are going to be serving up today as technically a true crime TV club, but we did a three-episode uh, series. It's not a series, really. It was on an ID murder mystery special. Uh, it's available on Discovery Plus if you're looking to stream it. It is a wonderful— or probably their ID case or yeah, the, for the free, free one. The free with, one. With commercials. But it is a wonderful survey for people who don't have the time to give to all of the HBO documentaries. Which are great. If you have the time, you should watch they them. They are great, but they go in very deep, and they're they're not And they're light, long. Yeah. And they're really intense. Yes. Very. And they those were made over an extended period as yeah. well. Over like— 10 yeah. or 15 year period. It's a long, this was a long process, 18 years, um, 20 years almost. But I think the thing to do is to give a kind of thumbnail up front. This is what happened. Because there was a crime and it's easy yeah. to forget when there's so much else going on there, with the story. There was a murder and if there's a miscarriage of justice around the murder, it means the real murderer has not been caught, which is sort of, you know, so. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Uh, three young boys around eight or nine years old go missing one night in 1993 in a small town of West, in the small town of West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, they're violated, brutalized, bound, hogtied bodies are found the following day in a creek in an area called Robin Hood Hills, which is very popular with the children of the area. It's a woodsy area at the end of this road. Um, Just, I mean. The, the, they said that the reaction was that seasoned police officers were left crying. Like yeah. people, nobody had ever seen anything like this. Eight-year-old children stripped naked, hogtied with their own shoelaces, raped, sexually mutilated, and stuffed in the mud at the Literally. bottom of this creek. To conceal their bodies, just hideous. They're they're stuffed in the mud, and their clothing are, is wrapped around sticks, which are also stuck Staked in the mud. Into the mud. So it's a strange, bizarre. It's a really strange organization to the crime scene, which also seems to imply some sort of ritualistic intent to the people who first encounter it. 
which is the birthplace of the miscarriage of justice right there. It is how the, the misdirection begins. Um, the most important thing to know about the night that the boys went missing, because it will play a huge role later, is that the call uh, from one of the concerned parents is received by a pro- patrol officer named Regina Meek. Uh, she assures them that everyone will begin looking for the kids and they'll keep an eye out. She doesn't think it's a big deal. She almost simultaneously gets That's call- about 5.30 that evening. That's about 5.30 that evening. She gets a call to go attend to a fast food restaurant where the manager has reported an unidentified black man who appears to be greatly mentally distressed, covered in blood, who has gone into the women's room of, it's a, it's called Mr. Bojangles. It's a fast food chain in this area. He locked himself in the women's room, uh, covered the walls in his blood or whatever blood was covering him, and then left by the time the patrol officer showed up. Um, she speaks to the manager and she says, is he still there? And the manager says, no, he's gone. She is called away and does not go in to examine the bathroom or the blood. All of those things will be looked at later. I, I, I don't know. I think like it, I can't. I couldn't figure out how much later it was. But the point is, is that these two events—the disappearance of these boys and the appearance of this strange, unidentified man covered in blood—happen on the same night and in the same area, within minutes of each yeah. other. Like the officer was actually taking the missing report person's report, the first one, right. while that evening about the first missing boy, when the call came in to go to Bojangles. Yeah. So um, I think it's probably important to talk about um, some of the the people who take over the case. The lead investigator locally is a man named Gary Gitchell. Uh, The sheriff's department from the area also gets involved. The families are interviewed. The boys were all in second grade together at Weaver Elementary, which was a local elementary school, obviously. Uh, They were, what are you doing? (laughs) Are you organizing your groceries over there? I need a cough drop. You need a cough drop. You go ahead. Y'all pay no attention to me. Um, The uh, Christopher Byers, who was one of the young victims, lived with his mother, Melissa, and his adoptive father, John Mark Byers. Christopher was described as kind of a hyperactive child. They called him the worm because he couldn't sit still. (laughs) Um, uh, One of the other boys' names was Michael Moore. Uh, and then another boy was Stevie Branch. Um, as you already sort of pointed out, they were all uh, bound in the same way. But there is a particular gruesomeness to the injuries that Stevie endured. Uh, his face is deformed. by The, the injuries are so bad, his face is deformed uh, when they discover him. Uh, they also discover, this is really just hideous. I don't know how we're going to talk about this, but it's like, I don't want to whitewash this case. His scrotum has been removed, and the skin on his penis has been ripped off. I just... just hideous. So, it's not hard to see the level of trauma that this entire community experienced. Right, this there. is a small town yeah. of, of people, everybody knows everybody, and it just was a, a heinous, hideous crime. It would have been hideous in any community, but it's not a crime-hardened environment. These, this was very suburban. Yeah. And these were eight-year-old children. Uh, the local authorities put together a list of people who were known to torture animals. Uh, the police do end up revisiting the fast food restaurant bathroom incident from earlier. Um, allegedly, blood samples are taken from the walls of the bathroom. We'll come back to that later. Uh, 
They discover in the early days of the investigation. The sunglasses of the guy were left in the toilet, so they're still present. Yeah. Who knows what they might have on them or... They get a tip about a 19-year-old man named Chris Morgan who used to drive an ice cream truck through the neighborhood who has suddenly moved to California. Um, Morgan was known to interact with the boys. There is a detail about him that appears in the movie next week that I don't remember being mentioned in this documentary. It kind of was. Was it that he had asked at some point the, for a picture of Stevie the Branch? photograph, I don't know that that was, but I assumed that that was because the woman who wrote the book that, the movie is based on actually participates in this mm-hmm. particular investigative report, a documentary series. Yeah. Um, I assumed that that was a fact that was why he became a person of interest. Yeah. His showing of interest in the kids in the first place. Yeah. Uh, the police locate him in Oceanside, California. He is clearly either on drugs or withdrawing from drugs in withdrawals by the time they question him. They show his behavior on the interrogation room camera. He's jumping all over the place. He's not violent or hostile, but he's erratic. And apparently part of the reason that he's in Oceanside is to get away from his parents because they kept accusing him of being on drugs and alcohol, which you kind of do if somebody is, you know, on drugs and alcohol, which it seems like maybe this kid was. I don't know how that played out. I hope he's doing okay now. But at the time, there seemed to be something up with him. What he says during the course of the interview is, I don't know, maybe I blacked out and killed those little boys. And then he rec- he recants that. No, I, I could never have done that. So he's all over the place is, is really what it is. And apparently they're able to solidify some sort – or his story becomes – his official story becomes he was jumping off a cliff into the Mississippi River far from the crime scene uh, on the night of the murder. And then he went to a nightclub. So I assume people can verify that he was at the nightclub the night of the murder. But that is not really a hallmark of the investigative – process of this particular police department yeah so who knows if anyone ever did that yeah sorry don't want to give too much away but it really becomes relevant as we move forward with this ridiculous alleged investigation what this investigation turns into is every i'm going to say it white male involved in law enforcement in this town trying to shove who they think is the most likely suspect down the throats of the investigators who open their throats pretty wide, to be frank. And one of those is a um, probation officer who zeroes in on one of his cases that he's worked with because the kid wears black, paints his fingernails black, has expressed an interest in the occult. And that kid's name is Damien Eccles, which is a name that's familiar, I think, to most people who have an interest in true crime cases today. Damien Eccles, and he and that patrol officer whose name is, I'm trying to find it in the notes, Jim something, basically positions Damien in the eyes of law enforcement to be the number one suspect. And this patrol officer, along with another quote-unquote expert who was called in in the eventual trial, Dale Griffiths, all believe in a certain set that there is a criminal element out there that we have now come to refer to as the satanic panic. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. <laughs> 
At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So... Basically, there's now an element in this town that has zeroed in on Damien Eccles as the number one suspect in this case, solely on the basis of how Damien Eccles looks, talks, the music he's interested in, the books he reads, and the fact that he has demonstrated an interest in the occult. They believe he is a Satanist. uh, Damien's got a criminal history, but none of it's for violent offenses. Nothing. Um, He's not known to torture animals. No. And apparently they have a list of local people who do torture animals, so that's the thing people are keeping track of. Um, And P.S., the blood-covered man who came wandering in um, on the night of the the murders uh, is, you know, maybe... Uh, not pursued at all or looked for or mm-hmm. investigated or anything else. Uh, they mostly go after the kid with the black T-shirts who likes Metallica. Right. Uh, Damien Eccles is not actually a Satanist. He's interested in Wicca, and he makes the mistake of trying to explain Wicca to the police detective who comes out to interview him. Everything he said to the police was a mistake. Everything. Like, somebody should have told that kid to shut up. And yeah. if you're ever in any doubt in talking to the police, just don't say anything at all. You don't have to. And if you don't know what the right thing to say is, maybe you shouldn't say anything because Everything takes, this kid says He is took wrong. every piece of bait they gave him. They arrogant. asked him to speculate on the mindset of the killer, and he said it was probably a thrill killing, and people who kill children who are involved in the occult do it because they gather they gain more power from the murder of a child. Yeah, it was just a case study in what not to fucking say he to the He said police. everything yeah. wrong. He was yeah. an arrogant little shit, but he was, you know, was seven, being a 17-year-old kid or however old he was. How old was he at the time of this? I like, think he was 18. I think he was newly 18. Yeah, he yeah. was really young. I'm just... Right. And so, yeah, he was an arrogant bozo and whatever. He was being who he was. And, right. But there was absolutely no physical evidence. I don't know what his alibi may or may not have been. There's no evidence that it was investigated or included or in mm-hmm. any other, in any way, part of this investigation. So they start really closing in on him because, you know, there's absolutely no evidence. Right. He's just weird. So this is when the story takes one of those twists that's almost like you feel like it's been scripted by a Hollywood screenwriter. An informant from another town named Vicki Hutchinson suddenly just shows up at the police station in her town and tells the local police that her eight-year-old son was best friends with the murdered boys and that she's heard gossip about Damien Eccles and says she knows a friend of his, a young 17-year-old boy named Jesse Miss Kelly. He is a high school dropout, a slow student, worked part-time as a babysitter for her child, and he apparently once told her that his friend Damien likes to drink blood and stuff. So she just offers this is a, to go undercover, and the detective gives his blessing and says, keep me posted. This is so not this whole story. As we discover, I think, in the movie we're going to talk about next week, she was uh, being investigated for a credit card fraud scheme by the cops who pressured her into going undercover. She she had suddenly her eight-year-old son manifested this friendship with these murdered boys and coughs up this 
unbelievably elaborate tale of watching them murder the kids. Which and, he absolutely yeah. disavows currently. Yeah. Like, it's just the complete preposterous nonsense and the sort of thing nobody would take seriously in a real and genuinely serious investigation. No, absolutely. But it becomes the foundation for their case. And uh, so they have this confession from the eight-year-old boy. Then they zero in on Jesse Miss Kelly, who has severe mental handicap issues. Who was like, yeah, the intelligence of like yeah. a third or fourth grader. He's a nice guy, but they say that he's learned to to cover his disability by simply agreeing with right. whatever people tell him. So in an, in an interrogation, that's the antithesis right. of what you want to do. And they also keep cueing him. They play the young boy, Vicki Hutchinson's son's account. It's not really a confession. They play it for him and then ask him to verify details. And he keeps getting basic facts of the crime wrong. He keeps saying it happened at a time of day when it couldn't have happened. And he said, well, the boys skipped school. And everybody knows the boys didn't skip school. It couldn't have happened at noon. It had to be dark out. Nothing he's saying passes muster. And as you said, it becomes the basis of the entire case that they make against Damien Eccles. And they've right. decided to throw Damien's friend in the into the mix because they know the crime, or they believe, which is what I believe, the crime could not have been committed by one person. Because you have Seems three unlikely. little boys. How do you subdue? One of them would make a break for it and run. It had to have been more than one person. That said, I don't believe it was any of these people. Um, okay, so we're at June 3rd, 1993, and they're really trying to put the screws to Jesse, and they draw a circle. And they show it to Jesse and they say, listen, Jesse, Damien and his friend Jason Baldwin are the two dots inside the circle. Where are you? Are you in the circle with them or outside the circle with us? I mean, this is just... <laughs> it's just the most ridiculous set of like, I, everybody should be fired and possibly prosecuted for their participation in this ludicrous investigation, not to mention, and this is the part that really makes me angry, three little children were brutally murdered yeah. and no one, mm -hmm. no one is looking for their killer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they charge Damon, uh, Damien, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Damien's friend Jason um, Baldwin. 16 years old, Jason Baldwin. With three counts of capital murder. They have a press conference the next morning when a reporter asks Inspector Gitchell uh, how confident he is in his case. And on a scale of 1 to 10, he says 11. Uh, the media asks for the arrest reports, but a local judge has sealed all the records. So the media has no details or evidence on the proof, proof of the uh, evidence that they've collected. They just have this crazy story from Jesse Miss Kelly. And there is no evidence that they've collected. So there's a reason for that. Like, there was not any blood at the scene. So this, where they found the bodies clearly is not where the murders were. No. I, and so where would they have been? Uh, like, there's no, uh, everything about everything this is makes wrong. Me, it sets my hair on fire. It makes me so angry. Well, and the interesting part of this special that we're talking about on ID is that the defense attorney for Jesse Miss Kelly was assigned to the case and initially thought, oh, fuck, well, this guy's guilty of sin. I right. Go, what am I going to do? And his name is Dan Stidham, and he's interviewed extensively, and he said the more he looked into it, the more he realized this was an absolute miscarriage of justice. There was no evidence that this young man had had anything to do with the crime. Um, 
they had told him he had failed his polygraph test, but the fact is he had only failed one question, and it was a question having to do with substance abuse, that on all of the answers he had given about the murder, he had shown no chemical variation or whatever it is those inadmissible tests measure foreign people. So it was just he became kind of the beginning of this pushback right. against this outrageous uh, because case. Because he would say things like they, they got together at noon and as it was getting dark outside, so... That's two different things. It, right. They can't have gotten together at the two different times. Everything he told them was self-negating, and he recanted it. He said to his lawyer he absolutely had nothing to do with it. He hadn't seen these murders take place. He had no involvement in them. And so they retracted um, the, the confession. So not only was it not really a valid confession, but they had taken it back. He pled not guilty and said that the confession was false. So the judge decides to divide the trials in two. He's going to try uh, Damien and Jason in one trial, and he's going to try Jesse in another trial. And what they say to Jesse is that if you turn, if you testify against Damien and Jason, we'll take the death penalty off the table for you. And he says, no, I won't do it, because he he stands by the fact that he has recanted that right, confession. Right, and that it's not true. Yeah, that it's not fal it's false, and he's not going to repeat it. So the prosecution is crippled by that. And that is well. You'd think they'd be. Well, it was the birth of the satanic panic, pure satanic panic. Is this where they brought in? Oh yeah, this is when they're going to bring in this idiot, Dale Griffiths. Who I mean, just the most inexcusable. If anybody deserves to be in jail, it's this guy. He claims to be an expert in the field of the occult. Like that stupid television show, Evil. Right. Not a thing. There isn't an expert in the field of the occult. There is no way to be an expert in the field of the occult. It means the unknown. And yeah. if we don't know, then it can't be known. <laughs> and if we do know, then it's no longer a cult. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you can't be two of those things at the same time. Right. It's a self-negating prospect. <laughs> Jesus. But he's, it's like listening to somebody talk about QAnon, this guy. But he's taken this seriously because if you, if you are deluded by fundamentalist religion, you believe this shit is real. And that was his defense. Right. And it was the defense of all of them is the bullshit nonsense around religion, which you're entitled to believe whatever you want, but you can't prove it. So it, once again, it is just as occult as anything else. And I will say... Once again, for the record, the only group of people worshiping the devil are Christians. Yeah. Nobody else believes the devil exists. Wiccans are not about the devil. Nobody else is worshiping the devil. Not a part of any other religion. Well, I don't know. It may be a part of some of the other related mm -hmm. Judeo-Christian religions. I don't believe so, but maybe. Right. But nobody outside of the religious circle is worshiping the devil because nobody else believes that the devil exists. All of the basis of the satanic panic in this country was that there were secret satanic cults out there engaging in ritual, animal, and human sacrifice, Which and that they not. placed a premium on the sacrifice of children. And there was never any evidence of any of this. Just like QAnon. Ever. Ever. It was a, cons it was a religiously driven conspiracy theory that destroyed people's lives and careers, and one of the primary fuels for it was homophobia. And we and talked ignorance. about this in our second episode about the South of Salem case. Absolutely. It is, a, it is, it is the female version of this, of the, uh, the devil's not story. People being yeah. prosecuted for nothing, for never doing anything other than being different than the people who wanted to prosecute them. So they bring in this expert, Dale Griffiths, and oh, he testifies. God, what an and then the defense points out that he got his 
so-called degree in the occult from a correspondence school where you basically write in. And the judge, who has since been elected to the Arkansas State Senate— I don't know that he's still there, but he was yeah. subsequent to this— uh, al- allows him to be considered an expert. Because so, he said he doesn't think that you necessarily have to have a degree in the state of Arkansas to be considered an expert. So apparently I can go set up practice in Arkansas as a brain surgeon. I yeah. don't have any experience or education, but apparently you don't need that in Arkansas. One of Dale Griffiths's strikes, I'm putting in air quotes, against Damien Eccles is, well, all he owns is black shirts. You would think a man would have a different wardrobe other than 15 black T-shirts. That is not evidence that somebody killed three little boys. That I only wear black polo crazy. shirts. Yeah, fuck off. I'm wearing one now. Okay. Yeah, it Fired was just... Up. Fired Yeah, up. and this Dale Griffiths guy was unrelenting. Yeah. My favorite part about him is coming. It's at the end. It's the big finish. Yeah. Um, there is a fiber evidence, secondary transfer. These are all things that are familiar to anyone who studies true crime cases. They are really wobbly sciences. They play a role here. There's a local state lab tech who says that a red fiber could have been transferred from a red bathrobe in the home of Jason. Could have been. They're, so, they're yeah. similar, but there's no, it's not a lock. It's not proof and can't say for certain it is the same, but they are similar. The key witness for the defense is Damian Eccles himself. Did you think this was a mistake? Another huge mistake. Let's yeah. let the arrogant 17-year-old, 18-year-old windbag yeah. get on the stand and start shooting off his mouth about stuff again. I thought it was a mistake. I didn't think the thing they came up with as their big denouement was the problem. But at some point, I kept waiting for... Okay, well, here's the alibi. This is where the boys actually were. And here are the witnesses testifying to. And nobody ever said that. Mm-hmm. I, It drove me mad. I was like, why is nobody actually creating, uh, making it impossible for these boys to have c- committed these crimes? Yeah. They didn't. Clearly, they were somebody else. The, the younger kid, the 16-year-old kid, said as much, said, I have an alibi. I was somewhere. I, I could not have done this. I was not present. I was not there to do these crimes, um, but I never heard evidence of that. That, to me, seems to have been a more sensible way mm-hmm. to um, to defend this case, but I didn't see any sign of it. One of the things that happens in his testimony, which is one of those things, is like you waited for his testimony to introduce this. So, okay, they, they have... They were able to confiscate an enormous amount of material, written material from Damon's home. And I wasn't clear if they were doing it after his arrest or before his arrest. If they were doing it before his arrest, it sounds like an illegal search and seizure. Um, But they discover uh, a book on Satanism that has underlines and notes in it. And he testifies. You want to say what he testified to? Well, it wasn't on Satanism, but Satanism was one of the things that was included. It was a book on witchcraft. Right. Absolutely. And he says, those are not my notes, that I bought this at a library sale. It it was a library book that had been used and beaten up by a bunch of people and that someone was clearly writing a report on Satanism and had gone through and underlined and taken notes about those passages in the margins. But it wasn't him. But it wasn't him. Because he wasn't actually interested in that. He didn't. He was Wiccan. He was not interested in Satan. He didn't believe in that. Jason was planning to testify in his own defense, had gone through the entire trial, enduring what he claimed was totally made-up testimony from a fellow inmate at Juvenile Hall that they drank each other's blood or something from a guy who was getting leniency in a deal. Jason was told to keep his mouth shut and sit on his hands because he would have the opportunity to testify in his own defense. 
And he claimed the lawyer took that opportunity away from him, and he was told at the last minute he would not be testifying. Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So, we arrive at a place where the, the prosecution's case is they listen to heavy metal music and wear black and paint their fingernails and have books on Wicca, which there is no law against. You're not, we don't have a state religion in this country. Mm -hmm. And so, religious persecution, despite the con ev plentiful evidence to the contrary, is actually illegal in this country. Mm -hmm. um, so they have religious persecution and black clothing and heavy metal music is their case against these kids along with that idiot expert that they have. And the kids' defense is non-existent. They, nobody puts on a defense for them. There's no witnesses about that I know of mm -hmm. about there being any um, alibi or other mm -hmm. reason that they can't do it or other viable suspects or anything else. They just, and the the younger child, the 16-year-old's um, lawyer, rests his case after only putting one witness up, basically planning to blame the whole thing on the other kid, on Damon. Mm -hmm. Damien, yeah. Damien, and then... Um, get his client off, thinking that's a strategy. It was, it was not a great defense. They didn't mm -hmm. get a great defense, and despite that, there was really an absence of prosecution because, as I just said, that was their case. They, they wore black. You know, that was his, it. Never got stronger than that. That was as strong as it was. This satanic notion. Well, it, though it, no evidence was presented, no blood evidence was ever found. There was nothing to connect them to right. the crime. No physical evidence. Nothing forensically. Nothing existed to connect them to the crime except the one fiber, which 
actually another expert said He brought was, in another expert to dispute it. I think the other thing is about the trials, it was all about the closing arguments. Because as you said, there was no evidence. It was all about the rhetoric of the closing arguments. Because in one closing argument, you have a lawyer saying, look at Damien Eccles, there is no soul in there. Something preposterously override. He has no soul. And then in the defense's closing argument was they just said it was a ritual fi- uh, killing, and so they found somebody weird dependent on, which is like, okay, those are the opposite poles of this case. Which is people believing that they're going to be believed because of who they are and not because of what they've done or proved, which Absolutely. is the pinnacle of incompetence. The great irony of the closing arguments to me was they were talking about the travesty against these three little boys and then they were willing to sacrifice three more little boys mm-hmm. in pursuit of their own justice yeah. w- with the same kind of travesty because they were asking to kill these kids. Yeah. They were not saying they wanted life in prison. They wanted them dead. Yeah. They wanted to murder Damon and what's the kids? Jason. Jason. Damon mm-hmm. and Damien and, and Jason. And Jesse was the other And Jesse. Trial, they yeah. wanted to murder them yeah. for the death of these kids even though they had no proof that they had anything to do with it because they didn't have anything to do with it. March 18th, 1994, after one day of deliberations, the jury reaches a verdict. Damien and Jason are found guilty on all three counts. They return for sentencing. The following day, it's either going to be life without parole or death. Jason gets life without parole. Damien gets death. Jesse, in his trial, is also convicted, and he gets life in prison. They all file appeals in May of 1994. Uh, Jason, who was interviewed in the special in what appears to no longer be in prison, spoiler alert, says he arrived in prison with everyone believing he was a child killer. His nose was broken, his teeth were knocked out, he was subjected to numerous physical beatings. And probably worse. In 1996, the Arkansas Supreme Court upholds all three convictions, and then a documentary comes out. HBO steps up and starts making people aware of this crime. So, since we're here, when did you become aware of this crime? I have to say it was not after the first documentary. I think there, as you said, there were three. There was I Paradise think there were three. Lost. And I think it, I think I was the, when the second documentary came out. The promotion for the second documentary was about the first documentary yeah. and the progress that had been made in the. So I became invested mm-hmm. after subsequent to the second HBO documentary. I watched them both and was flabbergasted. I frequently, when we're watching cop shows and procedurals or whatever will dismiss the plot line if people are being suspected of or brought in for or incarcerated for crimes that there is no actual evidence linking them to the crime other than the inference of the people doing the investigation. I just think it's preposterous, and I can never believe it in a fictional story, but that's exactly what happened to these kids. With absolutely no evidence whatsoever, they'd been sentenced to death and life in prison without the possibility of parole, even there was nothing connecting them to the crimes other than the fact that the bigots in this community were prejudiced against these kids. That's mm-hmm. all that was up. And sorry, as a you know, longtime gay guy, mm-hmm. um, I've had a lot of experience with being discriminated yeah. against because other people are different than me. And mm-hmm. that's just not a good enough reason for somebody to go to jail. I, 
there are plenty of people I'd like to put in jail, too, because they're different than me. And I, that's not OK either. And that's probably a good thing. Right. The South of Salem story, which I mentioned earlier, which is very similar to this. God. They didn't even the women involved didn't have an, an expressed interest in the occult. They were just lesbians and they were openly gay. And that was enough in this time period to get them uh, falsely accused of child molestation with similarly coached, quote-unquote, confessions and accounts and bullshit. And these kids yeah. weren't even gay. They were yeah. just unusual. I mean, right. they may have been gay, but I don't think so. But so um, the point is that this is all pre-social media, but it is the first example I think that anyone I know can think of of the Internet being used to shine a really bright spotlight onto a case like this. And it caught the attention of a lot of really famous yes. people because it was about freedom of expression, because they were being prosecuted about what kind of music they listened to, because of what kind of T-shirts they were wearing. Yeah. And the artist community was just not having it. And uh, and, and particularly musicians yes. like Eddie Vedder, Natalie Maines, um, you know, they were they were all and but but the people who started the website uh, Free the West Memphis Three were Kathy Backen, Burke Sauls, who himself said he grew up in the South and he had friends like Damien and Jason and he knew what it was like to he owned a Black Sabbath album and he was not gonna let owning a Black Sabbath album be used as evidence of murder. Absolutely. I mean uh, Ozzy Osbourne is still roaming around free, right? Right. So in 2001, the mess, uh, the West Memphis Three benefit from a new law that is turning into a it tongue is twister. a mess. Um, the, the mess of the West Memphis Three uh, benefit. They benefit from a new law in Arkansas that says if an inmate feels that DNA testing can exonerate them, if advances, the inmate can request it. Right. The defendants, though, have to accept that if it comes back against them, they'll accept the results. So Stidham, the defense attorney for Jesse Miss Kelly, petitions the judge for new testing. And two years later, two years later, the motion is approved. And the boys all consent because they didn't do the crime. So they're not worried about their DNA being involved in it. Eighty items from the case are sent to the lab. No DNA belonging to the West Memphis Three are found at the crime scene or on the items of clothing that were discovered taken from the boys. Nothing. But the shoelaces reveal a human hair. Who does the hair belong to? DNA testing proves it doesn't match any of the three defendants. So director Peter Jackson, the director of the Lord of the Rings films, begins funding the investigation, and a famous FBI profiler, who I think we've talked about before, John Douglas, takes a look at the evidence as well. He concludes it's not satanic, duh. Um, <laughs> because that's just not a thing. But he concludes something that set me back, that the killer knew the victims, that I'm not surprised about, but that it was probably one person. And I'm thinking, how do you subdue three little boys as one person? If you are a person of authority and you're yeah. talking to three eight-year-olds, they may well do what you tell oh, them to God, do. So like horrible. That's the yeah, only horrible. way I can conceive yeah, of that, but yeah. you can boss kids around because they're afraid of grown-ups. Like, yeah. I, I don't know that that's fair, but I think it's true, and it's probably usually a good thing because then you don't have children running in the street because you said don't. Right. So two uh, private investigators get involved, and this is, I'm going to summarize here, but this is the beginning of a focus on one of the stepfathers of the boys, Stevie Branch's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, who was never questioned by police, which is like investigation Un 101. Unbelievable. You always question the family members of the victims, always, always, always. There, there are problems in his story. He says he took his wife to work at 5 o'clock, and then he started to search the woods for the boys at 6, but there were no searches going on at 6, and the boys weren't really reported missing until 9. And, and they took hair and blood samples from him, and they never tested them. 
And now they discover, in light of this new DNA testing, that it's his hair in the shoelaces. And the that only way they do it is that the private investigator goes to interview him and steals a cigarette butt out right. of his ashtray while he's out of the room and g- manages to get DNA off of it so they can do a comparison because the investigators never tested the samples that they got and probably, you know, threw them away or something. Yeah. They lost the samples from the um from the the, the Bojangles guy, that that character. They just lost them. My bad. The bloody man who appeared in the bathroom the night of the murder, they just lost the blood samples, never sent them out for testing. So they have no evidence of that because they can't find it anymore. On the basis of all of this, Damien says he wants a new trial. And on the September 30th, 2010, that's how long this has gone on, his attorney, Dennis Reardon, begins to make his case to the higher court in Arkansas on the basis of advances in the DNA evidence. Weeks later, the Supreme Court says Judge Burnett, who was the judge in the initial trial, must consider a new trial. But the original trial judge, Burnett, is elected to the Arkansas State Senate, which Thank God. takes him out of the mix. It means he can't have anything to do with the because new trial. Because he was ruling against them and hedging them out of the, their bets and preventing them from having the testimony that they needed and allowing stuff he shouldn't have allowed. He was incredibly corrupt in his yeah. pursuit of this case. So they really benefited because I think if he'd still been on the bench, he would yeah. not have heard new evidence and they would even have sent them back to jail. But the new judge is assigned and no sooner has he begun work that he gets a call from one of the prosecutors asking him if he will consider an Alford plea. Now, we've talked about an Alford plea before. And I'd just like to take this moment to say it's Alford. Alford. F-O-R-D. And the people in this documentary said Alfred about 4,000 times, and it was driving me out of my mind. I get it. It's They're very close, but it's an Alford plea. It's not an Alfred plea. And just to be clear. Which, to my ears, sounded like Alford Plea, which is how I originally wrote it in the notes. I was like, well, every plea gets offered. I couldn't like. So, yeah. But where have we talked about it before? Was it the South of Salem story? They made a similar offer of an Alford plea to the women in that case. And they said no. The givens is you have to admit guilt. Yeah. You are then acquitted of the crime. Like it's a way of getting out of being in jail or whatever. But the only way you get out is that you say you did it. Yeah. And. I believe the women in that case said, no, they wouldn't say they did it because they hadn't done it. And one of the kids, the 16-year-old Jason, who's no longer 16 by this point, he's like a 30-year-old man, um, says, no, I won't say that I did it. I absolutely won't. But there's a factor here that was not present, I think, in the other case we talked about, that if they don't all agree to this, Damien is going to die. He is on death row. And so I think they do all end up taking the he plea to save his life. Specifically yeah. to and Damon thank Damien thanks him for him at the time that they are acquitted or let go, I guess. They they're not acquitted. They're actually found guilty as a result of the plea. But he thanks Jason for doing it because Jason steps back. He says it's the only thing he's done in all of it that was not the truth or was that was not, you know, that he wasn't proud of because, but he did it for Damien because he didn't want them to kill him. So reaching sort of the end. And then there was an episode that did sort of the extras that talked about what I wanted them to talk about because it was not anywhere in there. Told you it was interesting. But, um, Dan Stidham, the defense attorney for Jesse Miss Kelly, who was really the first one to stand up against all of this injustice, has sent, sends a small partial DNA sample from the genitals of the boys to the lab. It's not enough for a full profile, but it does rule out 
the three, and it rules out Terry Hobbs. Yeah. Who's and the hair and the shoelace has never been damning because they were his. One of them was his kids, and they lived in the same right. house. I just I, that was always like I thought that was not enough. He believes they're looking for a serial killer, and he points out the first time somebody mentions there's a very large truck stop that abuts the woods where the victims were found. I didn't hear that earlier, um, but no one is pursuing his theory because yeah. nobody. Because the conviction is on the record. The Alford plea leaves the conviction on the record. The case is still considered closed by the West Memphis Police Department. They're not about to open it back up. Um, the last note on this before we'll get into what we want to talk about. Jason started a nonprofit called Proclaim Justice that helps uh, innocent people who are in prison. Uh, Damien today is an author, movie producer, and artist, and he lives with his wife, Lori. Okay. Where I came at this case... I didn't see all the HBO documentaries, but the one I did see was absolutely not. It was throwing the book at is maybe not the right expression, but it was it was casting an intense light of suspicion on John Mark Byers, who was another stepfather of one of the other boys. And he's weird. He's just a really weird guy and they show clips of him but they don't focus on him and the documentary crew followed him around he was clearly someone who didn't know how to behave appropriately in front of the cameras he said very strange things he was also somebody who had really struggled with drug abuse and the drug abuse had wrecked his teeth and so it was and i remember thinking at the time this may just be a different version of what was done to the West Memphis Three. Like, this is the mental health version of that. Oh, you're, cr you're weird and you say funny things and your sentences don't really connect. So clearly you murdered these three little boys. Like, and I remember thinking, where are they going to land on this? And so it was interesting to arrive at this present-day summation and see that that had been kind of jettisoned, that there wasn't enough evidence there to convict him. So, Well, yeah, one of their keys in that was that he'd had his teeth removed because there were bite marks on the children, but it was four years after the murders took place. Why would you wait four years to have all of your teeth removed? They were removed because he was a speed freak. He was a speed freak, And they yeah. said most of his, or whatever he was, but I assume that was it. And, and that... The reason that his behavior in and around the original investigation was strange was because he was a drug user and dealer and yeah. did not really have a great working relationship with the police. So right. I think it, I think it's very well observed. This is a case of he's guilty because he's weird and whatever. And it's yeah. there's, again, not any physical evidence to link him with the crime. Like right. that's just that's the problem with all of this. The only the Mr. Bojangles theory actually is probably the most viable. I don't know that he necessarily did it, but was a participant or was around. Maybe it was somebody who was left in one of the trucks and he was left on his own and went in the I don't know. That was the only one where there was any kind of viable and because all of the evidence was lost and we have no idea who that was mm -hmm. we'll never know that's just sort of an x factor that i have to say as a possibility but yeah eh. edwards i never terry hobbs i never thought it was terry hobbs because it was just a hair and a shoelace and the boys were in and out of each other's houses all the time and he may have tied that kid's shoelace that afternoon you know you'd never that's just not enough right and the fact that there was not any further corroborating evidence plus there was that additional dna mm -hmm. that ruled everybody out so okay i just that doesn't seem so probable what was the story that you heard that wasn't being told what was what did you zero in on well i think the thing that is the most well 
first I would like to say mm-hmm. that after it was absolutely proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that it couldn't have been any of those three boys, Dale Griffiths still says that he thinks they're guilty mm. because of his Christian bullshit mm-hmm. and his nonsense expertise in the occult mm-hmm. because they wore black T-shirts and whatever. So I that was my big finish for the story was that that moron actually sits on camera at a, a contemporary um, documentary on this topic where the kids have completely been acquitted mm-hmm. of this crime, not technically, but really in every other sense. He still believes that they are the they are the so his beliefs are now completely invalid because they are no longer based on any kind of fact at all. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that's thing one. I okay, just so I wanted to get yeah. a dig in at that moron. So if you know Dale Griffiths, push him down a flight of stairs next time you see him or something because he's really a hazard to people around him, a danger to the community, and nobody should hear another word out of his big fat stupid mouth. Um, <laughs> That's my Nancy Grace moment. Sorry. <laughs> I just it just I just yeah. wanted to strangle him. He yeah. was such an idiot yeah. and being taken seriously in this very serious matter. Mm-hmm. The thing that I'm the most upset about is that we have no idea who murdered these None. poor little children and no one is investigating and that to me is the most interesting fact. Mm. Where did the Alford plea come from? I think they know perfectly good and well and have known all along who did these murders. And this is, it's some rich, powerful something or another who is managing this from behind the scenes, trumped up charges, absolutely no proof, prosecuting innocent people, putting them in jail. And as soon as it's clear, they're getting out. Now there's a plea, but they have to accept guilt in a way that shuts down any further investigation into this crime. To me, that says... Somebody knows who did this, mm. and this is a cover-up more than it is anything else. I don't. I think hmm. everything else is a fucking red herring. I think this is definitely something that got done. It got done by somebody locally with because even if it was a truck driver, where's all that blood? Yeah. Where if he showed up, did he do it in the the back of his truck and then take carry them back but out? That's to the, the problem. How would he know why that the would, creek was even there if he was just driving through Why would you go to that trouble? If you were going to murder those boys in the back of your truck, just drive off with them and dispose of them out of town. Why would you then take them back to the creek right there? It Which you would make have any no sense. way of knowing was even there yeah. if you're just passing through and having your truck right. refilled. Like, none of those things account for that sort of thing. The Mr. Bojangles, I don't know. Like, that's an X Here's factor. the problem with the Mr. Bojangles story. The Mr. Bojangles story, I think could easily be explained away if you're just going off of what was seen in the restaurant as a, a crazy sort of unhoused person comes across the bodies and is, tries to untie them and is so terrified he runs away. But where's the blood? There, it, there was no bloody crime scene out in those woods for a random right. passerby to the, come across. The, the more incriminating factor about him was the mud than yeah. the blood. There was because there was no blood at the crime at the scene where the bodies were found. Where were the, the where was the crime committed? Yeah, and where, how did he come from there and to the other place with blood all over him and not get it all over the crime scene? Right. So he's really an X factor because we don't know anything. But honestly, the thing that was the most relevant to me was 
everything has been done to shut down an investigation into this actual crime because somebody is orchestrating that. Mm. That, to me, is the most suspicious part of this entire thing, and that's the story I heard. Yeah. So next week, the second half of this pairing, our final pairing in Southern Sins, the movie The movie, not The, Devil's Knot is the name of the movie. It stars Reese Witherspoon and Colin Firth. I, this is going to be hard to get into two hours. I, I don't usually say that. I think sometimes things can be overinflated in length, but I don't know how they're going to get this story into a two-hour movie. That's my question. That's what I came out of this documentary. It's a lot. It's um, a lot to cover. I mean, just in these three hours, this was nearly two hours as it was, yeah. and this was just the facts. How do you get this story into a two-hour movie will be interesting to see. Based on the book written by yeah. one of the participants in this particular documentary. What was her name again? Um, Mara Leverett. Oh, right. I, I, yeah, Leverett. I was okay. wondering about that because, I, yeah, I knew people from back home named Leverett. Okay, that's well, not back home, but South Carolina, as much as that's home. Do you all still claim me South Carolina? Anyway. Mara Leverett, yes, that right. was her name. Right, wrote, okay. uh, wrote Devil's Knot. And that was the basis for the movie, which we are going to discuss next week. The movie came out in 2014. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.